It's Monday, November 1st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Biden's Build Back Better plan continued to be slimmed down in an effort to get all Democrats on board. The plan now stands at $1.75 trillion and had some key things taken out, like paid family leave and efforts to lower prescription drug prices. Biden said that his presidency and House and Senate majorities hinge on what happens with the plan. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington digital editor at NBC News, joins us for this, Florida suing over vaccine mandates and a preview of Election Day. Next, there's been a lot of scrutiny placed on social media recently in light of the Facebook papers. And while social media has opened the line of communication for many, maybe we weren't meant to talk to each other so much. The number of meaningful relationships a person can have is far less than the number of people you can accumulate in a social network. And that's where the problems can start. Both genuine speech and misinformation gets muddled together very quickly. Ian Bogost, contributing writer at The Atlantic and director of film and media studies at Washington University, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Families in this country are struggling. We have been fighting for it. We've been told in every bill all along the way, sorry we couldn't get in this one, next one. This is the next one. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Well, it seems that the big spending plan has uh, is moving along. President Biden said that there was a framework set up. And Nancy Pelosi said that their text is available for people to start reviewing. Every time we talk about it, it keeps getting pared down a little bit more. The latest one is about $1.75 trillion. And there's still a long way to go with it, though. There was a lot of stuff taken out of it, too. Paid family leave, the effort to lower prescription drugs got taken out of this, all in that effort to keep reducing that price tag. That's right. So I did one point when talked about $7.5 trillion. Really, they've been working from this $3.5 trillion proposal for some time now. And as you said, it's whittled down on Thursday to $1.75 trillion with another $100 billion optional that could get added in that would address some immigration issues, although they're not sure the rules of the Senate will let them include that. But that's another possibility. But you're right. It's missing some big key priorities that Democrats had wanted. It doesn't have paid family leave. So the president had proposed 12 weeks at one point during negotiations. They were talking about four weeks and now it's down to no weeks. We know about 25 percent of the American public gets paid family leave through their employer, but this would have allowed them to get it essentially through like Social Security. You would have gotten it through the government if you had a child or if you had other sort of qualifying events. That's gone. And they've shrunken a lot of things down. There was a proposal that was really important to Bernie Sanders to include those who are on Medicare to have dental, eye and hearing coverage. That got shrunk down to just hearing coverage. So a lot smaller, but it does still have big things in it. And it's still really a historic bill. We're talking about universal pre-K from ages three and four. I mean, that alone, I think, would have been a historic thing to get done if if they're able to get it done. How to pay for it. That was always another sticking point, too. And it seems that there'll be uh, some new taxes, a 5% surtax on income over $10 million a year and a 15% corporate minimum tax. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of pushback even on on those aspects of it. 
That's right. So there was a proposal to raise the rates for the wealthiest Americans. That did not survive. There was also a proposal to impose a wealth tax on billionaires. So this would have been people who have more than $100 million of income three years in a row or people who have over a billion dollars in the stock market. They would have essentially paid on unrealized gains, a very complicated thing, but it was a billionaire's tax, and that tax has been scrapped. There's a surcharge that they're going to be charging on millionaires and billionaires. And the White House says that the level of taxes in this bill is such that it will be paid for, that it won't cost any more in debt. They'll get there with taxes. But it's a complicated equation, and there's still some questions about whether or not all of those could survive sort of constitutional challenges. Yeah. I did want to bring up this uh, interesting thing out of Florida. Florida is suing President Biden and NASA over these COVID vaccine mandates for federal contractors. They're saying, uh, you know, I think the the deadline for that was December 8th. But Florida is saying that, uh, you know, we do a lot of work with contractors for with NASA and everything. And it would just kind of get in the way of what we're trying to say. No vaccine mandates for anybody. That's right. Florida has sort of decided to be the anti-vaccine mandate state led by Governor DeSantis there. They're going to fight the federal government's requirement that federal contractors have their employees vaccinated. This is going to be at least a closely watched fight, given all of the interest in vaccines, but likely an unsuccessful fight, given the role that the federal government has in dictating what contractors and employees do. But Ron DeSantis, who many think is going to run for president, particularly if Donald Trump doesn't run again, really sort of putting all of his chips on being the one who opposes basically any measure to mitigate COVID. And then uh, just a preview of what's coming up on uh, Tuesday. Election Day is back again. Uh, We've been talking about the race in Virginia for a, a while between Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin. There's this kind of push that the GOP is doing there, an election integrity push. They're training all sorts of poll watchers just to be there and make sure nothing goes wrong. In early voting, there was a lot of people already present. So that's going to be all leading up to Election Day on Tuesday. That's right. Voting in Virginia, New Jersey, there's a special election in Ohio. The run in Virginia, where I am very close between Republican Glenn Youngkin and Democrat Terry McAuliffe, and I think we're seeing some of this preemptive election is rigged efforts, right? There, right. We know that politicians, parties generally have poll watchers, but the way that they're talking about the polls has some echoes of Donald Trump. So it'll be one that'll be watched very closely. And I think that it's an election in Virginia almost always is an election in an odd year that gets used to try to explain the national political moment. So lots of people will be paying attention to the outcomes of that race. And then another interesting one that we talked about earlier in the week with Janelle Griffith from NBC News, this question two on the ballot in Minneapolis, uh, police on the ballot. If this passes, they'll get rid of their police department and replace it with some type of Department of Public Safety Uh Basically, you know, mental health experts and substance abuse experts would be on calls with police. But it's a whole redoing of the police department and putting a lot more power in the mayor and city council's hands uh, that would basically uh, decide how it all work out. That's right. This is a real rethinking of how police departments are structured, how they're put together, how they're funded, and it's being put to the voters. So it'll be closely watched. I think, you know, the defund the police slogan which really came from there in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, has sort of become politicized and taken to mean not exactly what it means. But this is an attempt by activists to turn it into sort of real change and a change they think will be positive because so many encounters the police have are 
mental health issues are addiction issues. Right. And if they can get those away from sort of traditional law enforcement, the people who should be solving actual crimes, they could help bring about better outcomes. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. realize it's not that the intermediaries such as publishers and broadcasters have been removed. It's rather that they've been replaced by the big technology companies. And now you've got to get your stuff into the hands or eyes of other people through a service like Facebook or Twitter. Joining us now is Ian Bogost, contributing writer at The Atlantic and director of film and media studies at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to talk about a very interesting article you wrote at The Atlantic talking about uh, social media. So, you know, we've been hearing a lot about social media recently. It's such a big part of our lives, really. The Facebook papers is hitting the news right now and kind of the effects that they knew on people, teens and all that. There's just so much, right? And that's kind of the big issue with social media is that there's too much. And so the article you were were working on talks about how people really aren't meant to talk to each other this much. You know, we come from smaller social circles. The more important people in your lives often are much smaller in number. And through social media, your message could be amplified to many, many more people. And it really becomes untenable in a way. So, Ian, tell us a little bit about what you wrote and and why we weren't meant to, to talk to each other so much. The idea that we ought to and that we deserve an audience with the whole world all the time, maybe multiple times per day, and that anything we think or say ought to reach as many people as possible. We got to get as many followers as we can. That's that's the idea that I'm trying to call into question in this piece. And if you look at the social science and even the biology of kind of how humans work, uh, there's some debate about it, but it, it is clear that there are limits, or at least that most people before the internet interacted with a relatively small number of people, especially the most interactions they had might have been, you know, five or 10 or 15 people, your family, your closest friends, and your extended circle of of colleagues and friends that you really engage with on a regular basis typically might be, you know, 100, 120 people, which is, you know, suggestive at least of the fact that we just were never meant to have this many interactions with this many people this frequently. And it's so interesting, you know, that number of uh, 120, I think uh, a British psychologist, Robin Dunbar, had that number at 150. In my lifetime, I know I've met that many people, but do I truly know that many people? That's a hard no. Yeah, somebody that I would trust and and agree with everything they say, that's a hard no. That's really tough in in our most um, intimate, you know, connected relationships we have. This is obviously what psychologists would say, right? Maybe about one, uh, about five to 15 close friends. One of the consequences of that is that online, people just started trusting more and more people that they might not have known or maybe shouldn't have trusted. And that is one of the things, not the only thing, but it's one of the things that's allowed misinformation uh, to spread more broadly. It's not just that the information out there is bad or that there's a lot of it, but people are more receptive to it. They're more willing to share it and they're more willing to invest a belief in it than they might have been previously. Yeah, you made a, a note in the article too, which is pretty interesting just kind of going over how online communication has grown, right, from the World Wide Web in the 90s to user-generated content to the social media that we have. And this was previously kind of uh, exclusive to big companies, corporations, somebody that had the access to big, giant channels of communication. And now this is given to everybody, basically. 
Exactly. And everyone believes that they deserve it too. And it's all free, which is important as well. You know, it used to be that if you wanted to connect with someone, you'd have to, you know, maybe a print a newsletter or a flyer and then mail it out to your community. Or even if you wanted to make a phone call, that used to have a, a cost to it. Even a text message used to. So everything has been reduced. Uh, the, the friction has been reduced. Right. The cost has been reduced. And we've been given this potential audience of millions or billions of people and told you ought to have the ability to address it. That's what free speech means now. And those were the intermediaries before the costs, the barriers. And, you know, if you're going to publish a book, you know, your publishers, all that. Now the new intermediaries are the social media companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter. Talk about that a little bit. There's this myth, I think, in the technology industry that's sometimes called disintermediation, that what the Internet does is it removes all of those barriers. You no longer have to get a publisher to approve what you want to say. You can just post it on Facebook or make your own website or blog or whatever it might be. But if you think about it for even just a minute, you realize it's not that the intermediaries such as publishers and broadcasters have been removed. It's rather that they've been replaced by the big technology companies. And now you've got to get your stuff into the hands or eyes of other people through a service like Facebook or Twitter. Or you've got to make it rise to the top of a Google search in order that people can see it in the first place. And those companies, those kinds of companies make their money through engagement by, by monetizing data and attention. And for that reason, it's in their interest to have you interact with other people and other ideas and other units of content as frequently as possible. Talk to me about Megascale and how yeah. that just becomes <laughs> this unwieldy thing. Megascale is a term that my Atlantic colleague, uh, Adrian LaFrance, coined to name this assumption that big technology companies have that they have to grow as large as possible, as fast as possible. And they have not just a big user base, but a kind of unprecedented one. If you think about the fact that Facebook has billions of users, a couple billion users, previously in human history, that is just unprecedented that a company or that anyone really, even a government would have direct access to control the information that that many people see and to uh, influence uh, their behavior. Now, one of the things that happened around Megascale, uh, that idea of the largest possible business, uh, is it became a tacit precept of the technology industry so that if you want to go and get funding or start a company, you must grow as big as possible and as fast as possible. And that value made its way into the hands and hearts of ordinary people, too. So everybody from a politician to, you know, your, your neighbor or the, the influencer down the block, they believe that they're celebrities, right? And not just celebrities, but they have the potential to reach anyone on the earth immediately and all the time. So Megascale is first a kind of business model for the modern technology business, and then an ethos, a way of thinking about and interacting with the world that kind of comes on the heels of that business model. So what do we do then to help with this? And I, I know, you know, to be clear, you're not saying, you know, communication is bad, all that. And I think you've made your point to that. It's just, you know, so much of it, right? So what do we do? Do we, how do we limit social media? A lot of people have talked about regulatory intervention, but yeah. even some of those yeah. things are just really difficult to implement and to enforce. They are difficult. And, you know, as these Facebook paper stories start to come out and we see more and more calls to regulate or to legislate Facebook and other social media companies, one of the things that sometimes comes up is, oh, if you just break up these companies into smaller, they're just too big. You know, it's, it's a monopoly issue. Break them up into smaller companies. But that doesn't really help when you, when you give it a, a real thought, because those smaller companies would still have the same structure, the same sort of mega scale at their heart, serving billions of people and letting them talk to one another constantly. 
So one of the things that I started to think about is, well, what are the other ways that you can introduce limitations or constraints on behavior? It's not just whether a company like Facebook ought to have a billion users or whatever, but what each of those individuals are allowed to do or constrained to do and how we might scale it down or downscale it into a more kind of human-sized uh, experience. A way of trying to get back to that time when, you know, you, you talk to a smaller number of people less frequently, you made the most of the opportunities you had for communication, and because it had friction and cost to it, both financial cost and, and kind of opportunity cost, it was more considered, if you will. Right. And so, you know, if you think about this, we're constantly constraining ourselves online all the time. Like, you know, Twitter says, oh, you can only post this many characters. You know, this is the way that, a, that, that an image is supposed to look on Instagram, or it's, it's square in shape, or at least it used to be, or the way that a Snapchat post can time out and disappear. Those are examples of arbitrary, artificial constraint that we accept because we understand it and we're willing to embrace it. And so while it's a long road from point A to point B, I think that refocusing our attention to technology services so that they embrace and design some of that artificial constraint and make it more natural, that's that's one way of thinking about how we might solve some of these problems right. in addition to some of the regulatory conversations that are that are on the horizon. You know, one of the examples that you listed, too, uh, in all of this is Google Plus, maybe a better way to kind of organize these social structures. And I personally never liked Google Plus, but maybe this is all to your point, right? You know, it didn't work, it didn't work that way because you couldn't get the amass the, the main followers. But organizing things in those circles, uh, circles of importance, right? Your family, your coworkers, and then all the other people that uh, you might have come in contact with, you know, could have been maybe a better model, like you said. But, you know, what happens with what we have already, people don't want to lose their megaphones. People don't want to lose what we already have. And that's another uh, hurdle to all of this. It's very, very hard to go back. And, you know, you can look back on the design of these services, whether it's Facebook or Google Plus, and say, oh, if we'd known then what we knew now, maybe we would have acted differently. Maybe we would have, you know, introduced some guardrails. And that may or might not be the case. But knowing that we can't literally go back in time, we can still clean up the way that these systems work. And there may be some combination of factors, some of them regulatory or legislative, if we can manage to make that happen. And some of them, uh, you know, driven by the marketplace, uh, by people's desires and their willingness to change their behavior. And people don't necessarily know what they're willing to do either. But we, we acclimate to these new services relatively easily. You know, back when Vine, this short video service that, that Twitter owned and shut down after a little while, Back when that existed, it was six-second video clips, yeah. right? And if I told you, you know, and even in the era of 10-minute YouTube videos, you're going to love six-second videos. You would have been like, oh, that doesn't make any sense at all. But right. they were delightful. So some of this has to do with what exists. And, you know, the com competitive uh, nature of the marketplace is supposed to give us more options, not just in the sense of more places to get the same idea or the same experience, but different experiences. And while Google Plus may not have been a fantastic and it certainly wasn't a successful social network. It did offer a different way of organizing our relationships that was more in line with the idea that they're naturally limited to some extent or that the way that we talk to our family is different than the way that we talk to our colleagues and that there's a finite number of each. Ian Bogos, contributing writer at The Atlantic and director of film and media studies at Washington University in St. Louis. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.